0: Everybody loves it. If you've been to a wedding, you've heard it quoted. It's one of the most, I would say, top two. 1 Corinthians 13, Psalm 23, probably the two most popular chapters in the Bible. Then we did 1 Corinthians 14, kind of other end of the spectrum, one of the most controversial chapters. You got tongues, whether women can speak in church, all kinds of things on that. Uh, today and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at First Corinthians 15, which I would say is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Paul defines the gospel or the good news at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, and then he goes on to explain how important the idea of the resurrection is for us. So Jesus said he came to preach the gospel or to preach the good news, and Paul here defines what it is. He says, this is what you have believed, and for us, belief determines behavior. I'm not talking about intellectual assent, but what you believe in your heart, that determines how you live. And Paul says, these are the things that you need to believe. And so we want to see... What he's talking about, starting in verse one, now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel or the good news that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved, um, you're kept from harm, you're delivered, you're liberated. If you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now here are these four points of the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. Those are the twelve disciples, even though Judas was dead. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom were still living, though some have fallen asleep. We don't have any idea what that occasion was. Then he appeared to James, who is Jesus' brother, then then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared appeared to me as to one abnormally born, uh, as to one who is born out of order, out of sequence. That word can actually mean miscarriage or abortion. Paul's saying, I don't really fit with everybody else here. For I'm the least of the apostles and don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Uh, when Paul became a Christian in the midst of, he was actually on his way to arrest other Christians. Acts 8, three says, but Paul began to destroy the church Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So that's why he's saying he's the least. He persecuted the church by the grace of God. I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe. So that's a, a summary statement, that uh, three, four, five, six, those verses, and they're really s- summarized. What does it mean? To be a Christian, what is it that we say we believe? Again, not intellectual assent. What do we believe in our heart. Belief determines behavior. Proverbs says that our hearts the wellspring of life. We live out of that. So whatever we're carrying in our hearts in terms of belief, that's going to impact the way that we live. And Paul says here these are the four. You've got to get these four things. And central to that is the resurrection. The central concept for us as Christians, if you're someone who's following Jesus, is a belief in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That's everything hinges upon that. As we get farther into 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see pretty quickly Paul says that if, if Jesus wasn't raised, then we none of us have hope. We're to be pitied above all men if the only reason we have hope is for our 75 years here, we might as well go find something else to do. If Jesus wasn't raised, then death has not been defeated, then we're still we're still slaves. We're still slaves to death and to sin. So resurrection is key. There's been this movement. It's, I don't feel like it's incredibly prominent, but depending on what circles you run in, you may have heard this, you may have picked up on this. It was popular a few years back with the Da Vinci Code and all that, this idea that uh, the bodily resurrection of Jesus was a myth. It's a legend that was added on uh, by the Catholic Church in the mid-300s, 400s A.D. in order to consolidate power. That might be something that you've heard. It's actually pretty silly. It's like saying a branch grew a trunk after the fact. You can't... Corinthians was written in 55 A.D., and Paul says, this is what I've received, meaning this is older than me. This is what I've received, and now I'm giving it to you. All of the first witnesses, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they were all written before 100 A.D. Every one of them, the resurrection is central. The church fathers, if you go back and read them, particularly in the from 100 to 200 A.D., every one of them is, set, is proclaiming the resurrection. The reason they're following this man Jesus is because he was resurrected from the grave and to think the church then came back and added that on later when all of these guys at the beginning are saying that's why there is a church because Jesus was raised from the dead doesn't really make sense again I don't know that that's necessarily a very prominent idea but depending on the circles that you run in you may hear that some and I'm just don't move in that direction again it can be difficult for us sometimes in the scientific age that we live in to hold on to this idea that Jesus was raised from the dead and maybe that's something that we can think. We can give a little bit on that. You can't. We can't give at all on that because if we don't have that, we don't have anything. We're still in our sins. We have nothing apart from the resurrection. So there's this idea, Paul says here. Here are these things, these four things. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. And he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. Those four points Paul says that's what you've believed and that's what that's what's given to me, that's what I'm giving to you, that's what we all need to be carrying around in our hearts again in the age that we live in, it can be difficult to to base your faith on this idea that a guy was raised from the dead 2000 years ago. We know that doesn't really happen anymore. I don't think any of us know anyone who's been raised from the dead. Michael, Ghana, do you know somebody? No. So even he's been in Africa for 10 years, he doesn't know anybody who's been raised from the dead either. So, we don't it's not something that we've that we experience on a regular basis. And again, for us, it can be easy maybe to just say, let's, let's see if we can talk about some other things about who Jesus is that are more palatable to where we live. And there are all these alternate theories for the resurrection. Now, the, the disciples believed it 100%. You can't read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts and not see that the resurrection is central to their beliefs. You see here Paul, central to our beliefs. If you read the early church fathers, central to their beliefs. But for some of us, we can say, well, maybe it was central to their beliefs. Does it need to be central to our beliefs? Maybe they were just mistaken about this whole resurrection thing. They were sincere in their beliefs, but they were just sincerely wrong. And there are all kinds of theories out there for what truly happened on that first Easter day. Some people say, you know what, the ladies, they just went to the wrong tomb. Sometimes girls don't do a great job following directions. And what happened with these women, it was dark. There are no streetlights. And they were emotionally drained, they just went to the wrong place. They had the wrong address. They go up, the tomb is empty, and they just jumped to the conclusion that Jesus has been raised from the dead. So there truly was an empty tomb, but it was empty because there was never anybody in it. And some people say, Well, you know what? Maybe, maybe not that, but hallucination. What happened with these guys who I just listed, Peter, the twelve, they had they hallucinated. They were had so much invested in jesus emotionally they had sold everything given up everything to follow him they spent three years of their lives tracking with this guy to think that it all went crash came crashing down on good friday they couldn't handle it and they had this expectation that he was going to be raised from the dead and so they just hallucinate it happens all the time people see things they see what they want to see all the time now this would be an interesting incident or instance because you would have multiple people seeing the same thing at once but Let's just say somehow, okay, you have this grand hallucination. Somehow 500 people have the same vision at once. You've got Saul, who is persecuting the Christians, also has the same hallucination, which doesn't make very much sense at all. But even if you move in that direction, everybody knew where Jesus was buried, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He was a prominent Jewish leader at the time. The Jews, if you read in the book of Acts, were intent on stamping out this message that Jesus had been raised from the dead. It was blasphemy, heresy to them. They, no, they don't want this thing moving at all. And if they knew one of their guys, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a part of their ruling council, if they knew Jesus was in his tomb, don't you think they would have said, Joseph, open the thing up and bring out the body? It ends everything. If these guys are basing their credibility on the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and we know that he's rotting in a tomb over here, then let's see the body. Does that make a whole lot of sense? So what some people say is, you know what, the tomb that doesn't make sense. The tomb really was empty. You're right. People would have known who Joseph of Arimathea was. They could have easily found the burial place. It was right outside Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified, right outside, right outside Jerusalem. Everything is close in terms of geography, so it would have been easy to uh, verify, is the tomb in fact empty? So yes, the tomb was empty. But that doesn't mean that Jesus was raised from the dead. What probably happened is he fainted when he was on the cross. He'd been tortured by these Roman guards for hours. You've seen The Passion of the Christ. He got the full beat out of him for hours. And then he's hung up on a cross in the heat of the day for three hours. He probably just fainted from exhaustion, pain, dehydration, all of those types of things. And then when he got into the tomb, it was nice and cool, and he just, he revived. He just kind of, he woke up, and he walked out, and at that point, it, the tomb was empty, and the disciples said he was raised from the dead, because he came out of the tomb. few issues with that idea. One, the Romans were professional executors. I mean, that's what these guys' job was, to make sure he's dead. They stabbed him in the side with a Spear Again, he'd been beaten. He'd been crucified. He had 75 pounds of spices and linen wrapped around him. There's a 2,000-pound rock at the tomb. Two Roman guards out front. If Jesus somehow gets past them, they have to pay with their lives if they don't fulfill their assignment. Somehow Jesus does all of that. He just fainted. There's actually, people said there was a uh, a spice, not a spice, an herb that could be mixed with vinegar and it could slow down your heart rate. And so maybe that's what they gave him when they they put, when they, when uh, he was on the cross and they tried to give him something to drink, so he took that. And so maybe his heart rate really did slow down and he was able to fool everybody and he got into the tomb and he was able to kind of hulk out of the uh, wrappings and the spices and move the 2,000-pound rock and kind of throw his voice to get the soldiers to look that way and he goes the other way and then he comes out and he shows up in the upper room with the disciples looking like he's been run over by a truck, and he says, I conquered death. What? He looks like death won when you see him. And then we see appearances of him for 50 days, and we never read anything else about him. Where did he go? If he conquered death, to me what makes sense is he'd hang around for a little bit longer and let everybody know. He ascended into heaven after 50 days. There's there's no indication here in, in any literature that's credible of any story about Jesus beyond a couple of months after his resurrection. Well, maybe he didn't actually. Oh, let me read you this. This is from the Journal of the American Medical Association, a Christian publication for sure. Modern medical interpretation of the historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead when taken down from the cross. So there's your learned medical opinion, which you already knew that. He's dead. He's dead. He didn't just faint. Well, maybe what happened was he really did die. He really was put in the tomb, and then somebody stole the body. So that takes care of everything. We've got a dead Jesus in the tomb, and then the tomb being empty. Who stole it? Grave robbers? There's no medical market for a corpse. They don't make any money off of that. They steal the wrappings and the spices. That's what they left were the wrappings. They took the body. No grave robber does that. They're not selling them to a medical school. The Jews, why? No, no reason for them either. Again, they're trying to stamp out this message that Jesus was raised from the dead. So if in the very city where he was crucified, the disciples are saying he was raised from the dead and the Jews stole the body, they can crush this movement, produce the body. Christianity goes away before it even gets started. The disciples are laughed out of town. No credibility ever again. The disciples, best option out there. These disciples stole the body. They overpower the Roman guards, move the rock, steal Jesus away, and get rid of him somehow or other, and then show up and begin to preach that he's been raised from the dead. Possibly, if you read through the Gospels, doesn't really look like their character. They all turn tail and run when Jesus gets arrested. I'm not sure where they suddenly get their courage to go steal his body. Ten of the eleven who are left, don't John is exiled. Ten of the eleven are martyred, crucified, beheaded, speared, chopped up with an axe because of their proclamation that Jesus was raised from the dead. And you may say people die all the time for things that are not true. Very few people die for things that they know are not true. If they, if their character is so weak that they're willing to lie and say Jesus rose from the dead when they know he didn't, do you honestly think in the face of torture and death they're going to hold firm? Those are the kind of guys that crack. That's let's make a. That's you've seen Law and Order. Who rolls first? That's all. The, somebody's making a deal to get out of getting killed. In that. Scenario, if their character is such that they are knowingly deceiving people, to then think that they're going to be noble and carry that all the way through to death, it's silly. That's what we know of human nature. Not there. It's not there. It doesn't really hold a lot of, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Don't even take, not even counting the fact that the disciples didn't expect Jesus to be raised from the dead. That was not a Jewish hope. That one person in the middle of history would be raised from the dead. That's why they're so devastated when he gets arrested and when he's crucified. Not because they think he's going to be resurrected. Because they think, well, that means he's not the Messiah. The whole thing's done. We've got to go find something else to do. You see Peter fishing again because he's gone back to his old way of life. He figures the game's up. No motivation for them to steal the body. You can't prove the resurrection scientifically. You can't prove the Braves won the World Series in 1995 scientifically. You can't prove Georgia won a national championship in 1980 scientifically. You can't prove the colonies won the Revolutionary War. You can't prove any historical events scientifically. You can't can't observe those things repeatedly because, by definition, they're historical events. They happened once. We don't have a videotape of the resurrection. If we did, it wouldn't matter. There's a parable, I think it's in Luke. 15, 17, maybe Luke seventeen. The rich man and Lazarus, and there's a rich man, and he's got everything, and there's a man named Lazarus who begs at his gate, and they both die, and the rich man is in hell, and Lazarus is in heaven, and this, and, and the and the Lazar and, and the rich man says, can kind of talking to God here. Can you send some? Can you, have, can Lazarus just give me some water? No, you had your good stuff while you were in while you were on earth. And he says, well, listen, I've got some brothers. Can you send somebody to them so they don't wind up like me? And this God, this voice from heaven says, no. If they won't listen to the prophets, they won't listen to somebody coming back from the dead. And the same, like sometimes we want to say if there was just more evidence for the resurrection, if God could just make it more clear, then we would. But it's not true. There were 120 people in the upper room. Jesus fed at least 25,000 people over the course of it, just in two miracles. He fed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish. He fed 4,000 with, what, seven loaves of bread. There's only 120 who hang in there, people who literally ate a miracle. Can you get more tangible than that? Eating a miracle, and they don't stick with him. More evidence, that's not what we need. Our issue for most of us, whether it's exploring Christianity, is Jesus somebody who I want to follow? Or it's continuing in Christianity, pushing into deeper levels of intimacy and relationship and obedience with God. Our issue is not a lack of evidence. It's not that we haven't seen a videotape. Again, historical events, you look at eyewitnesses, you look at archaeological artifacts, you draw an inference from them. The crucifixion, according to guys who study evidence, is one of the best attested events of ancient history. That's not, the issue is not a lack of of evidence and to think that more evidence would somehow make it easier for us. That's not the testimony of scripture. Again look at the numbers of how many miracles Jesus the miracles that the people who were impacted by miracles versus the people who continued to follow. Very small percentage. Same thing is true even in our lives when we hear testimonies and we think that's great and then we go off and do our own thing or when God has even stirred some of you in deep ways. You've had incredible experiences with God in days and weeks and months and years past and those things are back in the rearview mirror and they don't necessarily affect what we're doing moving forward. The issue for many of us, I would say for all of us, but I'll just say for many in case you're an exception, it's not a lack, it's not I don't believe this is true. It's why do I need, why does it matter if this is true? Why does the resurrection matter? For most of us, we don't get the fact that we actually need A savior. If you look in the Gospels, people who are drawn to Jesus, it's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, who's spent everything she's got on doctors, and it just makes her worse. She's desperate. She's got nothing to lose. It's a man whose daughter is on her deathbed. It's people who are blind, wretched way to live during Jesus' existence. All they could do was beg, zero hope of their life situation ever changing. Those are the kinds of people who seek him out. Those are the kind of people Who are drawn to him. People who are desperate. People who recognize their neediness. Who are the people who kind of keep him at arm's length? The religious people who have it all together. They're the most moral. They don't need a savior. They've never messed up. They know the word. They teach other people. The rich. Jesus said it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of, of heaven. If you can buy everything you need, it's very difficult to come into contact with your own sense of desperation. The society that we live into, we have the most opportunities, we've got the most medical technology, we've got the most fill-in-the-blank, all of it. It's difficult for some of us to really grasp the, our situation apart from Jesus. Why do we need a Savior when we've got a great health care system? Why do we need a Savior when I've got a good retirement plan? Why do I need a Savior when I can go see a counselor? Why do I need just fill-in-the-blank? Because we have access to so much support, which is wonderful, it can cause us to push back a little bit, this idea that we're needy without him, this idea that we may be even in a desperate situation without him. If that's you, if you're someone who's seeking relationship with Jesus, maybe you love somebody who is, you can't, that's not something, you can't convince somebody of that, we can pray and those types of things, but you can't talk somebody into recognizing their own sense of need. It doesn't it doesn't work. But for me, that's the switch that has to be flipped before somebody is willing to say yes. It's one of the things that does make it more difficult for adults to come to faith than for kids. It's a lot easier for a kid who's living every day in dependence upon their parents to say, yeah, I get I might need to depend on somebody else. It's much more difficult for us as adults who have been raised to be independent to then say, you know what? I need help in this area. I, I need someone, and this is not something I can fix or figure out on my own. Here's some pictures from Scripture about our situation. We're drowning. Psalm 18, the cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me in my distress. I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. He parted the heavens and came down. This picture of being rescued, lost, 1 Peter 2.25, for you are like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Read Luke 15. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Some are wandering away, some have run away. This idea that we're that God comes after us who have who are lost. Slavery, 2 Peter 2.19, a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to sin. Galatians 4, 7 says, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. Jesus came to set us free from behavior patterns, from thought patterns that bind us up, that keep us in bondage. We're separated, alienated from God. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is uh, the idea of this this chasm that separates us from God. It's relational as much as anything else. It's not geographic. There's this gulf between God and us. We're alienated, and Jesus has come to reconcile us. The Bible says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so we may become the righteousness of God. There's this exchange. We move from being enemies of God to being children of God. It's a chasm that we can't cross on our own. Ultimately, probably the best picture. We're dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away. Nailing it to the cross. People want to talk about good works. When you're dead, your works don't, you can't do a whole lot. You just lay there and rot because you're dead. Step one is life. And then we can begin to talk about behavior. Well, let me clean it up first. You're dead. You can't clean it up first. Let me work on a few things. You're dead. You can't work on anything. Well, let me bring you my transcript, my resume. You're dead. You can't bring us anything life is step number one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We compare. Well, I'm not as bad as Hitler. I'm not as bad as Osama. I'm not as bad as my mother-in-law. Whatever your standard is, you're not as bad as. It doesn't matter. It doesn't say, for for all have sinned, but some have fallen short of the glory of Hitler. or all have sinned, and some have fallen short of the glory of your mother-in-law. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the standard. Nobody's going to say we've never messed up once. That drop—that means we've, we've all fallen short of his glory. Bo said earlier, he is perfection. We need somebody. We need a savior. Paul says he died for our sins. Those three words are gold for us. For our sins. Substitutionary death. Him for me. The wages of sin is death. I've sinned. That means I deserve to die. He pays for my sins. He pays my debt. So I don't have to. It's a wonderful exchange. But first, we have to recognize our need for a Savior. Paul got it. He said he's the least. And we say the least like he's top two Paul, Peter, one of the two. He's not the least by any means. He wrote half the New Testament. How in the world can he say? he? I don't think it's false humility. I think he truly believed it. Because when he was confronted with Jesus, he was actively trying to kill. It says in Acts nine one, I think it is, Paul was still breathing, was breathing out murderous threats against the church. When he's on the road to Damascus, he's gone to the high priest and said, hey, I think there are Christians there. Give me letters because I want to throw the men and the women in jail. He's on his way to imprison people. The first martyr, Stephen, He's stoned to death, and it says Paul is giving his approval. We don't know if he threw a rock, but he absolutely blessed everybody who did. I know, y'all, none of you are killing Christians right now. I know that for a fact. You're not as bad as Paul was. And God reached out and grabbed him. For some of you, you may recognize your need for a Savior, but you think, you know what, I'm beyond the pale. I've, I've said no too many times. I've run too far in the other direction again you're not killing christians and even if you were the example here is you're still savable you have to recognize your need for a savior and then you just ask for help paul says it's god's grace working within me but his grace is and his grace was not without effect no i worked harder than all of them you have this interplay between god's grace and our choices. We're saved 100% by the grace of God. But God, we're not saved against our will. Ever. God doesn't overwrite. We wish he would sometimes. There are people who you love. And you wish God would reach in there. And just change the switch. He doesn't do that. It's an invitation. Behold I stand at the door and knock. Open the door. That's all you have to do. He's come to your house. He's knocking on the door. And he'll come in if you answer. But you have to open the door. There's this interplay between His grace and our receiving His grace. You have to say, help. He'll come. But you have to ask. First, you've got to recognize your need for a Savior. Realize, I'm drowning. I'm lost. I'm in chains. I'm separated. I'm dead. Ask Him to save you. And He will. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're a God who saves. You don't sit on high waiting for us to figure it out. You came. You came. And you made a way for us. We had nothing to offer you except a mess. And you say, I'll take your mess. I'll take it. And I'll give you my perfection. I'll take your brokenness and I'll give you my wholeness. I'll take your sinfulness and I'll give you my Righteousness. I'll take your selfishness and I'll give you my love. I'll take the death that you deserve and I'll give you the life that you don't. It's the best trade in the history of trades. If there's a man or woman in this room who's never made it, God, my prayer, our prayer, is that today would be the day. Not out of any sense of guilt or manipulation, but them hearing you knocking on their heart, recognizing, you know what, I'm stuck. And I need some help to get unstuck. I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with worship. We'll have ministry teams here in the front corners. Uh, Two things. uh, Two, I guess, points of invitation or ministry. One.